when are we starting? Uh, we're we're starting now. Feel free to lead us in. I believe you had something to. We're really great at jump starting these episodes, aren't we? Welcome back to the Freaky Deaky. Is that what you want me to say? That's what I just said. Oh, okay. But now you can take it away. I'm just letting people know where they are in case they forgot. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Heather and Scott. Yes. What have you guys been watching lately? That sounded incredibly rehearsed. I can't believe it. Give it another <laughs> shot. <laughs> Did it really? Yeah. It sounded like you read it straight off a of paper. Be like, hey guys, just, what just have you been loose. watching on old Netflix? Like, yeah, you know, just loosen it up. Been your recent binges. Yeah, or we can keep this all in and you can say it again. <laughs> They're both kind of funny. I like them both. <laughs> what have you been binging? Yeah. Yeah. What have you been binging? I can't say binging. Binging. Yeah. You're like generation B, right? Or like something I wanted like to say bingo <laughs> or Benji. Benji. The dog. Benji. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, <laughs> what I've been watching, uh, I actually just started, and this is a show that you've wanted me to watch for a while. Uh, it's Oprah. No, I'm just kidding. It's uh, <laughs> it's The Outsider. I'm watching The O Network. Yeah, I, I started watching The Outsider. I wish you, you probably have actually. I wish you had told me Jason Bateman was in it. I would have started watching this months ago. Yeah, I probably did tell you that. Yeah, I, I don't really pay attention when you talk a lot, so. I've noticed. <laughs> no, I, What's The Outsider so about? I don't, I don't know that one either. Christian, you could probably, well, actually, I'm on episode two, so don't give too much away. Give the loose, the loose bits. I'm just going to say it's a Stephen King story. Okay. My husband will like that. He's a big King fan. HBO. There is a murder with the crazy twist. Ooh, you've got me. Mm -hmm. How many seasons? Just one. Yeah. Oh, so it's like new, new. New. Like a year or so back, right? I don't think it's going to be more than one season. Oh, see, that always makes me, I I like the one-offs, but I still love to like. There's a character or two that might, you might see in other places. Okay. Plus, they still have the whole Stephen King universe over on Hulu that's going to continue going once, oh, I see, yeah. once they start filming some more. I'll have to yeah. check that out. I was, I was legitimately like 10 minutes into the episode. I was like, I'm going to love this show. Mm-hmm. And the first episode, I'm like, I'm definitely going to love this show. Yeah, it is a great show. I'll add that to my list. Right now, I'm kind of deep in a, I think I'm in season two of, there's four out, like five's coming soon, so. But I've been watching Peaky Blinders, which oh, that's a good show. Great. It is yeah. really good. The Peaky Blinders. I know. Yeah. Every time I'm like, oh, I just want to start saying like, oh, you're, you're being cheeky. Yeah. But no, Peaky Blinders. It's really good. I, I always love everything English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So whether it's that kind of story or medieval stories, I love that area of the world and their their stories throughout yeah. history, whether it's actual historical, the monarchy type stuff mm. or. And that, like um, that the actor they got to play that one guy, like the dude that played Scarecrow in Batman Begins. Yeah, Killian. Oh, it's, that's what it was. I kept telling my husband, I'm like, I know he's been a bad guy in a superhero movie. Hmm. Nailed it. I was thinking yeah. uh, Spider-Man. Wasn't he in Inception? But yeah, he was. Yeah. He was Scarecrow. He's a Killian super Murphy. Good, yeah, super good actor. Yeah. So those are your, your guys' recommendations. Yeah, uh, yeah Peaky Blinders right is really good. Mm-hmm. I'm being a nerd and re-watching Westworld again. Mm. Yeah, I was going to start that, and then I was like, I'm going to jump through The Outsider first. Okay, then you got to do the got to do Westworld, because I have some episodes planned, but you guys got to at least watch the first oh, season. Oh, look, believe me, I will. Like, the, the whole reason I did this one first was because it's only one season, and yeah. I can get through it and then, you know, go into Westworld and have a few seasons to, to work with. But Yeah, you're going to see a lot of things we can use on the podcast related to that show. That is great news. or we can reference it back to that show at different points but it's mm. it's a fun show absolutely So, uh, yeah, we should probably get get going on this. We are today. We're discussing the Dyatlov Pass incident, and uh, 
this is a story that personally I've heard a hundred times and it's always fascinated me because of the ending and because of the mystery surrounding it and just the possibilities. Like over the years, I've heard several different possibilities. People are like, no, it was this, it was this. I'm like, hmm. So it's a, it's a good one to tackle. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, ramble on for too long. We should probably just dive right into it. Try not to burp. Sorry. <laughs> this is a professional podcast, Christian. We're not, we don't discuss How dare burping. you have a bodily function. Get out. Christian is no longer on the show. Welcome to the <laughs> Whoever's leading us in. Okay. Please. The Dyatlov Pass incident was an event in which nine Russian hikers died in the northern Ural Mountains between 1st and 2nd of February, 1959, in uncertain circumstances. The experienced trekking group, who were all from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, had established a camp on the slopes of Kolt Sakal, translated in Monsi language as Dead Mountain. The goal of the expedition was to reach Ortorten, a mountain 6.2 miles north of the site where the incident occurred. In local Monsi language, Mount Ortorten translates as Don't Go There. During the night, something caused them to cut their way out of their tents and flee from the campsite while inadequately dressed for heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures. After the group's bodies were discovered, an investigation by Soviet authorities determined that six had all died from hypothermia, while the other three had been killed by physical trauma. One victim had major skull damage, two had severe chest trauma, and another had a small crack in the skull. Four of the bodies were found lying in running water in a creek, and three of those had soft tissue damage of the head and face. Two of the bodies were missing their eyes, one was missing its tongue, and one was missing its eyebrows. The investigation concluded that a compelling natural force had caused the deaths. I'm sorry, compelling natural force? Yeah, a compelling natural force. That's amazing. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But it explains everything, but yeah. without explaining anything. Yeah. What was it? It was a compelling natural force. Oh, yeah. oh I see. I yeah. got it. Yeah. Classic. Yeah, we've heard that. <laughs> Numerous theories have been put forward to account for the unexplained deaths, including animal attacks, hypothermia, avalanche, catabotic winds, infrasound-induced panic, mm. military involvement, or some combination of these. Russia opened a new investigation into the incident in 2019, and its conclusions were presented in July 2020, that an avalanche had led to the deaths. Survivors of the avalanche had been forced to suddenly leave their camp in low visibility conditions with inadequate clothing and had died of hypothermia. Andrei Kuryakov, deputy head of the regional prosecutor's office, said it was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, but they had no chance to <laughs> save themselves under the circumstances. I'm sorry, Which, my dude, you're missing the, your eyeballs. Were you eyeballs? there? There was no panic. Yeah, nobody yeah. was panicked. They just pulled yeah. their eyeballs out of their sockets. Took their eyebrows right off, but they weren't scared. NBD, bro. NBD. I, I would say with the eyeballs and the tongue, though, those are the first things the animals get. Mm. They're the tastiest, I guess. Gross. To well, a wild Well, yeah, animal. it's like a gusher. Or it was a yeti. Or a bird that came to peck out the eyeballs. Or it was a yeti. Or UFOs. <laughs> or UFOs and a yeti. Yeah, they are found together are they not i would say my theory of wild animals seems more plausible but we'll we'll let you guys have your opinions that's hilarious that's hilarious we're gonna continue yes wait is it who's continuing i don't remember who's either one i said let's just like keep it in the eyes so i guess christian then we'll go to you and keep okay. it neato in 1959 a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern urals in sverdlas oblast <laughs> Soviet Union. Oh, these, these are going to be fun. Oh, my God. I, just, I was I like, meant, oh, yeah, it's I Russian. Meant to, I wanted to say before we started this story, like, we apologize in advance for butchering a lot of Russian because this is a doozy. But Speak you don't think so. Ferdlosk. Ferdlosk. Oblast. You did it. It's just Oblast. hard to say together. Yeah. It's really hard to understand, too. According to Prosecutor Tempelov, documents that were found in the tent of the expedition success suggests that the expedition was named for the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was possibly dispatched by the local Komsomol organization. Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. 
Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience and would be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 190 miles. I feel like this should be in kilometers because we're in in Russia. It was. It had both. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to put miles because nobody understands kilometers. And I wanted everyone to understand like the distance. I'm just throw that in there because I'm a, a fan of kilometers and of course, proper way of measuring. Wow. One of the few, but I figured for more listeners, miles. Makes sense. I just wanted to mess with to say something Hmm. to annoy Scott. Hey, see something, say something, right? You're talking to the girl who wrote the episode, so I put miles. Hmm. But now Scott has to figure out, do I edit that nonsense out? I probably won't even listen to it, guys, if I'm being completely honest. (laughs) I'll totally tune this part out. (laughs) You did state that earlier. I did. Okay. The route was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the far northern regions of Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of Lazval River. The route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission. Very communist, where you have to get all these different permissions. This was a division of the Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport, and they confirmed the group of 10 people on January 8, 1959. The goal of the expedition was to reach the Otorten a mountain 6.2 miles north of the site where the incident occurred. This route, undertaken in February, was estimated as Category 3, the most difficult time to traverse. On the 23rd of January, 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued their route book, which listed their course as following the number 5 trail. At that time, the Sverdlovsk City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed approval for 11 people. The 11th person was listed as Simeon Zolotaryov, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of similar difficulty. The Dyatlov group left Sverdlovsk City on the same day they received the route book. Hmm. Saying those names made me spit on myself a couple times. And I was like, damn, Heather, how many times are you going to make Christian say Sverdlovsk? <laughs> so, I mean, you guys know my neighbors and about them, but I live in a newer built subdivision we're in an up-and-coming place in alaska we live in wasilla it's growing community and Ah. a lot of our home builders are russian and so the people that formed our neighborhood uh let the builders pick their lots first so i actually live with both families on either side of me are russian so i was thinking as i'm typing this up and butchering names and trying to figure it out i'm like man i should just walk over next door and be like can you come read this on a podcast (laughs) for me yeah you got to remember those those resources yeah i know just have one of them on yeah. Just surprise visit. They're like, wait, you want me to what? I have this recorder here. Just say these words. Yeah. Say all these names. Yeah, these just dub it in. For me. Like, wow, she really got that Russian accent down. All right. Yeah. The, the group arrived by train at Evedel in the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. They took a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village that is that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending the night at Vizhai, the skyers per the skyers. <laughs> Look at all them skiers. The skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. On January 27th, they began their trek toward Gora or Torden. On January 28th, one member, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining nine hikers continue the trek. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they they cached a surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the night on the opposite side. But because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west, toward the top of Kolotsikol. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than move 0.93 miles downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the weather. So one thing I wanted to note about that that I heard was... um, as we read above that they are work, they were working towards their level three. Hmm. And I guess that's one of the certifications was camping on 
like a slope like that. And so they were saying some people like speculated that maybe that's what they were doing. They were like, hey, let's do this and yeah, get that off our list of things to do for this certification. Or maybe it's just they like you said, you know, it was just a mistake. They shouldn't have stayed there. Yeah. Or they didn't want to backtrack like about a mile. Yeah. You know, so let's pull out the vodka. There you go. Get the fire going. But we're on the side of a hill. Vodka it is. Vodka. Yeah, I'm glad somebody did that because I couldn't do the accent. Vodka? Oh. I think most O's are like a O, right? I took literally two lessons of Russian so far. I have an entire learned Russian on my phone. I just... I have German. What do you have, Heather? Um. Well, I took... I did three years of Spanish in high school. And I took one college course in German because German's like a huge bucket list language for me. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, failed miserably. So we try not to bring up my, you know, one semester of German because it was pretty brutal. But one day mm. I'll learn. Yeah. Yeah. Da. <laughs> I mean, my last name's German, so I got to fit in. True. So before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before he departed from the group that he expected it to be longer. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions. On February 20th, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and militia 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 is this supposed to be militia? No, it's militia. I know that militia forces became involved with planes and helicopters ordered to join the operation. On February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kaholt Sakal. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Charvin. The student who found the tent said the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed, leading down the edge of a nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, 0.93 miles to the northeast. After 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow and the forest's edge under a large Siberian pine. The searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were the first two bodies, those of... (laughs) Oh, man. Krivonyshenko? Krivonyshenko. Krivonyshenko and Doroshenko. Shoeless and dressed only in underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high and suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses, Dyatlov, Kolomogorva, and Slobodin, who died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th buried under 13 feet of snow in a ravine, 246 feet further in the woods from the pine. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been removed to use by the others. Dubinia was wearing Kravonshenko's burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Avalanche. False. A legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examiner found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not not thought to be a fatal wound. An examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the narrative of the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Thibault Brignolis had major skull damage, and Debrina and Zolotaryov had major chest fractures. According to, to Boris Bozrose Denny, <laughs> the force requ- required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to that of a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures, as if they had been subject to a high level of pressure. 
All four bodies found at the bottom of the creek in a running stream of water had soft tissue damage to their head and face. For example, Dobonina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone, while Zolotaryov had his eyes missing, Alexander Kolovana Kolobarov his eyebrows. A. Vosredeni, the forensic expert performing the post-mortem examination, judged that these injuries happened post-mortem due to the location of the bodies in the stream. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Manzi people, reindeer herders local to the areas, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. Several Manzi were interrogated, but the investigation indicated the na- nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and they showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. Although the temperature was very low, um, negative 13 to negative 22 with a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some had one shoe while others wore only socks. Some were found wraps and snips of ripped clothes that seemed to have been cut away from those who had already died. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest files claim that it states six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby at Kolotsakal, apart from the nine travelers. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing. To dispel the theory of an attack by indigenous Manzi people, Bozraz Denny stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Release documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal internal organs. There were no survivors. At the time, the official conclusion was that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force. The inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of absent of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive. In 1997, it was revealed that the negatives from Krivon Sheko's camera were kept in the private archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. The film material was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dyatlov Foundation. The diaries of the hiking party fell into Russian's public domain in 2009. On the 12th of April 2018, Zolotarov's remains were exhumed on the initiative of journalist of the Russian tabloid newspaper, Komsom. Malskaya Pravda. As good as Was that some it. kind of invocation? It might be. We'll see. Contradictory, contradictory results were obtained. One of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled a person knocked down by a car, and the DNA analysis did not reveal any similar similarity to the DNA of living relatives. In addition, it turned out that Zolotarov's name was not on the was not on the list of those buried at Ivanovskoya Cemetery. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the reconstruction of the face from an exhumed skull matched post-war photo- photographs of Zolotarev. Although journalists expressed suspicions that another person was hiding under, under Zolotarev's name after World War II. In February two, 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident Although only three possible explanations were being considered an avalanche, a slow slab, a snow slab, avalanche, or a hurricane. The positive possibility of a crime has been discounted. What do you guys think so far? I feel like my tongue is getting a workout trying to say some of these Russian names. The, the Russians really roast everyone that tries to read their names. I know. I'm like, sorry, Russia, if you're listening. Yeah. I mean, Christian and I have a little bit of a leg up because we watch a lot of hockey. Yeah, that helps yeah. a lot. But <laughs> there's yeah, a, there there's a couple in here that are just. Oh, yeah. Way too many syllables. Yeah. Makes it a little bit interesting when you come to read. Yeah, well, so... Alaska has quite the Russian community, too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah. So we're all on the same page, right? Clearly, a, a Yeti 
UFO related. Avalanche, yeah, totally. Yeah, let me hold on. I'll ask that question again after I mute Christian's mic. <laughs> what things I find compelling, and there will be more you'll hear ahead on the avalanche theory, um, are just the tent. And if you're that scared, I mean, I get you're trying to hurry, but the slits in the tent that people talked about and stuff, like, you know, they're watching something, the kind of hurriedness of getting out of there. Mm-hmm. What I if, don't feel like you hear an avalanche that far where you're really warned. If What if their tent got knocked over by the avalanche and then by the time they came they to rest, way out. They, yeah, the bottom but was on. You the, would think the whole thing would be buried when they went and found it. Maybe not. At that point, things could have warmed up a little bit or things could have resettled. I mean, I'm not a. I don't know. I think the force of an avalanche is pretty yeah. destructive. Um, I really wish I would have got some more of my husband's input on the whole avalanche theory just because he's t- I, he's actually taken an avalanche class last winter hmm. on this. And you learn all the different. Get him on the horn. Give him a call. <laughs> Speak yeah. That's, like, that's where it would this? be interesting or like the types of injuries if he if the the stuff that they now find common in avalanche victims is similar to what these guys have yeah that would be something compelling because their injuries are kind of strange yeah and non-common and according to what everybody says i just think you'd find more of them buried like the tent would be buried in that like you know they said 13 feet of snow hmm. found those other bodies yeah that is uh well they're like though the 13 feet of snow sounds like an avalanche. avalanche yeah but you think the tent would have like it would have came through and really yeah that's where it's kind of so it makes no sense that the tent would still be on top of all that but so could I, it guess, happen? I don't know yeah so in, in your theory um if we go the avalanche route would you say that the Yeti appeared before or after the avalanche to finish it off? Is it a before thing? Like maybe it's footprints. He was so heavy. He kind of knocked what, all What I would loose. say is the Yeti was there before and after. I'd say maybe mm, he, he created the avalanche. Yeah. I would just be like, if I'm a Yeti and you live out in the forest, it probably gets boring. I mean, mm. everything gets boring. Especially at that altitude. How all of a sudden, you, you know, there's an avalanche and there's some humans down there. You call a family or, hey, mm. let's watch this. Yeah. So then they're there before, and then the kids are like, can we eat the eyeballs? And they're like, yeah, we'll go down. Let's make sure you're all dead first. Yeah. And then we're going to send the the big boys in first just in case so they don't hurt any of our Yeti children. Classic. So the big ones came in and killed the remaining with mm. blunt force trauma, mm. and then they sent the kids in to eat the eyeballs. Well, there we go, everyone. Mission solved. It was the Yeti no. family. We, we reached it. Okay. Uh, yeah, regarding the avalanche. <laughs> On July 11th, 2020, Andrei Kuryakov, deputy head, dep- I can't, yeah, I can say Kuryakov, but I can't I've say noticed deputy. Heather and I are struggling, struggling with the Russian words. You're having trouble with the American <laughs> words. <laughs> I'm having trouble with the word head. I'm like, dip, deputy head. No, yeah. Okay. Andrei Kuryakov, deputy head of the Urals Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death. For the Dyatlov group in 1959, original explanation reviewing the sensationalist Yeti hypothesis, or otherwise known as the true hypothesis, American skeptic author Benjamin Radford suggests an avalanche as more plausible. But Benjamin Radford doesn't know jack shit, alright? That the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because of an avalanche had covered the entrance to the tent, or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. That doesn't make sense, though, because why not just open the door, the flap? Are you telling me it's easier to cut a slit than to just unzip the damn thing? I think this is where we need somebody that understands avalanches, because there's a lot of training with something like avalanches that we would have no clue about. But and is maybe there... this is some one of those weird little we need two ways out just in case yeah. type of things that we wouldn't know about in the real world. But if we'd been through that training, we might, especially yeah. back then. But just in case, I understand just in case, but just in case is for if the the flap doesn't unzip, right? Like, isn't shouldn't that be the first thing you try is to open the, the flap? Would, I don't know. Would they have had a zipper back then? In the 50s? Maybe. Buttons. Like probably. buttons, but still like. Especially in the Soviet Union. Yeah. If you were hurrying, trying to get out, you couldn't just cut the buttons if you're already going to cut slits. Or just rip it open. Yeah. yeah. Just bulk it. If you're panicked, who knows? But adrenaline kicks in. Maybe you're just. 
I, th- I say, maybe they'll tell us here in the rest of this paragraph. Perhaps they will. I should probably get back to that. <laughs> uh, and cut their way out of the tent, either because of an avalanche had covered the entrance to, the, to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have repairable, potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. That makes sense. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead. But at any rate, the group of four whose bodies was most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. Dubonina's tongue was likely removed by scavengers and ordinary predation. Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow had there been an avalanche, an avalanche, one more time, this one is poor. more time, had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to you sweep away it. the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. Over a hundred expeditions to the region had been held since the incident, and none of them ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and cornices, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. An analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area, its path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Dyatlov was an experienced skier, and the much older Zolotoryov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in panic from either real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. This has been the Freaky Deaky. We solved it. Yeti. Goodbye. No. Not Yeti, but probably not an avalanche. Not Yeti, but we will soon. No. Um, Seems like there's some compelling... uh, interesting facts that kind of point away from avalanche as well Mm -hmm. yeah it's got to be like some kind of crazy other compelling natural force that has to maybe something would blow you away like a catabatic wind which i'm diving into next i like the sound of infrasound actually that was the one that caught me yeah we'll get into that Mm -hmm. so uh in 2019 a swedish russian expedition was made to the site and after investigations they proposed that a violent catabatic Catabatic wind is a likely explanation for the incident. Catabatic winds are somewhat rare events and can be extremely violent. They were implicated in a 1978 case at Anaris Mountain in Sweden, where eight hikers were killed and one was seriously injured in the aftermath of catabatic wind. The topography of these locations were noted to be very similar according to the expedition. A sudden catabatic wind could have made it possible to remain in the tent. And the most rational course of action would be for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter among the tree line. On top of the tent, there was also a torch left turned on, possibly left there initially so the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. The expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two shelters, one which collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with the violent injuries observed. I built that fortification quickly also been knocked down on them and mm-hmm. yeah well and and to be rushing out in like minimal clothing still yeah. really you just stumped you're smart you're great hikers you're prepared you're outdoorsmen mm-hmm. first thing is you know keep your body warm 
I got would, properly dressed. Yeah. I That's, would have not have been in any of those things because I'd never heard of a catabotic wind. Yeah. I had not until researching this topic. Hmm. Christian, you want to tell us a little bit about infrasound? I will tell you about infrasound. Another hypothesis popularized by Donnie Iker's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, is that wind going around Kolat Sakal created a Carmen Vortex Street, which can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. According to Iker's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of Holot Chahal Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress. I don't like how I said that. The the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of Holat Kahal Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Hiker claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the ultrasound's path and would have regained their composure. But in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. Yeah, uh, go, go back and try that again. You said ultrasound. Did I? Yeah, Good out guess. of the ultrasound. <laughs> <laughs> okay. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure. But in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the ledge of, the, of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Hmm. I like the infrasound theory because like and, and for anyone out there that, that wants to give it a shot, there is um, a lot of, I guess, audio on YouTube that you can pull up. And the theory is that you're supposed to listen to it in like a dark room with headphones on and literally you just get the shit scared out of you like it's it's such a weird tone it's at just the right like whatever kilohertz or decibel or whatever it is that it just it sets you on edge and so the idea that what these winds are pretty much causing this this deep rumble of a sound do you think like maybe they were just sitting there and they think it that it, it was a yeti or something like some mon you know yeah well here's here's another part of that is that what is infrasound commonly um talked about with side by side and that's our our big boy the bigfoot like there's a lot of people that suggest that the the growl and the like the roar of a bigfoot contains infrasound and that's why people are so terrified when they they hear it they say it like almost rattles them to their core like it's more than just you a, feel a it growl. like you feel yeah yeah it's like something you, yeah mm-hmm. you feel the so it could have been the wind absolutely but it could have also been a yeti before or we, it could have been the one ma- making them think a yeti. Mm. So it's like either way, it's just yeah. interesting on that theory. Before we throw it on the yeti, mm. infrasound might not necessarily make them think of anything other than they're just kind of like panic, panicking, yeah. going crazy, overwhelmed by maybe the sound and mm. the feelings of the sound yeah. and what it's doing to their brain. And it's a natural phenomenon, obviously. It is. Yeah. But I, one I've never really heard of, but it makes sense. And then this could be because of these type of reactions this could be why later the soviet union and the united states started experimenting with this kind of energy for crowd control mm-hmm. yeah and to the point where it was thought that the soviet union actually directed this kind of energy at the us embassy embassy in the soviet union making embassy workers sick mm. years later you know what you should do christian you should um you should have Mandy film you in a dark room listening to one of these for TikTok and just just say what you experience, like what you feel about it. Like, I, I guess technically you're supposed to be alone. You could set up a camera or some use your phone or something like that, but just record like a minute or two of you just sitting in a dark room listening to it. I don't think yeah. it'll work on me, but I'll do it. You should like just give it a shot. Like I, I well, we should all actually give it yeah, a shot. Just we like, should. We should do each of us. Yeah. Our reaction. Yeah, that'd be that'd yeah. be pretty fun. Yeah, just do the video. We can put it on TikTok. Yeah, a little social experiment. You know, give it a give it a whirl. Yep. I'm all about it. Okay. Call. I'm in. Yeah. I'll do that. No Ouija board though. Yeah. Draw the line. Yeah, I'll listen to something that freaks me out, but not but just do those crawler that. videos when we were listening to those and that, that like shriek in one. the woods. Ooh. Oh my goodness. Like yeah. every time I heard and I was listening when you sent it over, I was 
cooking and I was watching up or listening to a mm. podcast. And then I was like, oh, this text, but I'll listen to it. And like the sound being stirred up in my ears, like, oh God, it was terrifying. Yeah. Christian, did you watch that video by any chance? The crawler? That was, sent, uh, like, I think it was in Poland. Two or three. There yeah. was one that was like, uh, and I posted these all on the Facebook page when we put that episode out. So links are there. But yeah. I thought I one did. is in the woods. One was like in a barn, it looked like. Yeah. But. Same, same guy sounds, though so that's yeah. the thing like maybe there is one out there but at the same time he's like, also mm. michael listened to him too and he's like these sound staged do that but that's the thing is like because like he's like running and they're like ah oh, like you hear the kids like running in the woods yeah Blair Witch style you know the, fact he's that like, the, eh. the video cuts off after like 30 seconds or so i mean i get it but if you're running away from something you're not going to worry about turning off the video in the middle of it unless he unless he had like six minutes of him running and then was like i'm just going to clip this down to a minute for YouTube. You can just record, go out in the middle of nowhere and record animal sounds. And well, you'll part get of it sounded like pig squealing to me yeah. too. Yeah. It was like I was thinking like a hog because uh, but the actual, a lot of the stories we heard were like Georgia and stuff with crawlers, yeah. and I was like, well, there's like wild boars and stuff, so who well, knows? Deer you know? make crazy sounds sometimes. Even okay, we put aside the sounds, and I know this is a DL love pass, but just to to clear this well, up because we never you actually hear a terrifying about noise that's going to make yeah. your like yeah i would if i'm in the woods and i hear some shriek that i'm not used to i mean even up here i'm going to get scared yeah but you said you just listened to it right or do you actually watch the 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 video with the in the woods where that emaciated yeah that little like yeah creepy ass mm-hmm. white thing in the like on the rock or whatever yeah. it looked like it didn't look like cgi to me it looked like something so either it's an incredibly thin human being butt ass naked like making weird noises for youtube like doing it for the vine hey friend you're skinny you want to come to yeah want to come make a weird video but yeah either way to this day fake or not gives me the chills yeah it's terrifying yeah. so if you haven't watched it it's on facebook and you can find the link with our crawler episode and yeah it's and if, if you haven't listened terrifying. to the crawler episode it's episode 16 so go back and check it yeah. out go and then give us your opinion and, on uh, that get scared yeah. So now that we know that this was a weather issue, yeah, and and not what Scott's going to talk about yeah. next, the Yeti. So so now that we're fully aware <laughs> that this is in fact a Yeti, um, <laughs> what were, were the cuts in the tent made to look out? Those were just my thoughts. Okay, so you can so, elaborate. Yeah. Those were talking points. Like you okay. can see that my thoughts yeah. were very short, and I had a lot of questions on this yeah. topic. I see. Yeah. Okay. So essentially. Um, let's talk about some. Did, uh, first of all, have any of you guys seen the the photos from the photographers that were with them? Yes, I have. Uh, we, I have two in mind, and I'm I'm not looking at them right now. But the one, uh, let's see. Yeah, one was the silhouette in the woods, correct? Blurry figure of a man in the in the background. Yes. Uh, and then the second one I'm thinking of is the super bright light. Both. There are possibilities, possible, possible normal mm-hmm. reasons for those two photos, mm-hmm. but you can't prove for sure that it was like the, yeah. the, the torch or flashlight yeah. of up close or just, you know, or even film damage. From, yeah. Film yeah. damage or just a mistake. Cause those films, you could make mistakes and you wouldn't even know. Like you, you wouldn't rewind it all the way. So you'd get a yeah. double explode exposure different types of things like that. Just there were more camera malfunctions than we have in our digital camera days. Yeah. You can't just snap a picture, look down back. Oops. Flub that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but what about the, the, the person, the unidentified person in the woods or a person's shape in the woods? Cause it wasn't necessarily a person. One of the stories I heard that could be like a shadow of one of the guys or one of the hikers hmm. and just the way it was set up. But I can say a hundred percent that's bullshit without even, <laughs> without even looking yeah. at it. So, so it's, it's a, uh, I don't remember what the rational reason, but that something like that takes away some of the ra- ra- rationality to the, yeah to the subject. At one point, the, the first one with the bright light is pretty easily explainable hmm. under the circumstances. Yeah. But then this other picture kind of throws off that story a little bit. Yeah. And that's where you're you're kind of struggling a little bit with what's real here. One one question I have is like I know in there's a great deal of radiation throughout that country. Right. Different areas or just I guess several areas when when they talk about radiation and stuff like that with this. Is there any record of there being radiation on this mountain? One of the theories and this is a time period when. uh the Soviet Union had just started developing 
their nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union yeah. and the United States were testing nuclear weapons yeah. on their territory. And some people, I think, believe that there could have been a potential nuclear test nearby that killed the hikers that was never admitted to and couldn't be at the time because the Soviet Union was probably still hiding Secret, the types yeah. of experiments they were doing. Mm-hmm. So it would be better to leave the question out there of what it was as opposed to saying, no, we did a ex- uh, nuclear test nearby, mm-hmm. didn't know about these hikers, or even more sinister, we did, and we wanted to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. Heather, do you want to add on So that? I've also, I mean, the name is it's known as Death Mountain. Mm-hmm. And from what I've heard is there's not a lot of natural like plant growth or anything, vegetation, not a lot of animals that live on here because mm. it's so, it's, I mean, like a steep climate. It's nothing where anything wants to live. Yeah. So I find that interesting. And like two points of like, if there's something living, like there's not a lot of animals that could be predatory and scare them. Mm. Like here, if something comes out, even if it's wintertime, I'd think first it's going to be a bear that came out of hibernation Yeah. before yeah. I'm going to just jump to straight thinking it's like a Yeti or mm. a Bigfoot. Or something like that. So it's, I don't know, interesting with. I would think they'd have wolves there, though. You would think, but like, I don't but know. But if there's nothing, yeah. if there's nothing living there because there's not a lot of vegetation to eat it's off of feed off. There's no deer for like whatever the wolves want to eat. Like <clears throat> if you're looking at a hole as the food chain, it's not a hospitable. Is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah. Like environment for everything? Well, that's another thing that would make me think that the missing eyes and the tongue. That's not necessarily the work of a large predator. That is, birds. that was a, that would be birds yeah. or maybe rodents mm-hmm. if it's, and maybe back then they weren't able to determine, especially after a certain time, yeah, what caused it. Then you're still talking about having like rodents and stuff up there. Like but it, rodents it, don't need much. Rodents and birds don't need much to survive. But they do still freeze. I mean, I found a dead mouse outside frozen. I I was watching a little kind of weaselly thing behind my house the other day yeah just walking around um there's some fruit to it yeah well uh, like voles like up here in alaska and everything in the woods they actually live they bury in the snow like and, create warmth which they call like the subnivian zone which is like a layer of snow that they live in hmm. and i actually like i've even been out in the woods just at the lake a couple weekends ago and where we see uh the snow moving yeah and my dad starts messing around with it, and it's a little shrew just out there. I mean, they're just common. It's a wooded area, yeah. but. That's when you see that fox walking around in the snow, and then all of a sudden it jumps straight up and dives head first because yeah. it's grabbing that yeah. rodent underneath the snow. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, I've never witnessed that, but it makes oh, there's sense. A, I only know about this. So I'm going to be straight up truthful because of the wild crats on PBS. My kids <laughs> love that show. Nice. And they did one on uh, like voles and shrews and where they live in the subnivian zone and like the prey that gets them like birds mm-hmm. and foxes and whatnot what about i mean you talked about it not being like a, a place where like plants grow mm-hmm. or anything like that like it's a specific area right I picture, like, like when i'm thinking of diatla pass i i picture like this just like snow winds blowing cold yeah. like edge of a mountain like mm-hmm. rocky yeah not great but the, the fact that like the the indigenous people to that area call it dead mountain right mm-hmm. yeah that's just, like, I'm saying it's just very interesting like mm-hmm. nothing lives there yeah it's but there's dead mountain there's correlation between that like there's i've heard stories in the past about when vegetation just doesn't grow in certain areas like almost like cursed areas yeah like you know there's i forget where it is exactly but there's like a circle in um I'm not even going to attempt to guess where it's at, but it's like a big circle that pretty much has no vegetation whatsoever that paranormal weird things happen at all the time. Like people will camp in this area and then they'll wake up not in that area. Like the tents overnight, magically, they appeared like half a mile down the road outside the circle. You know, like so there's there's things that are attached to that. It could be energy, could be whatever. But there's also there's places in this world that that have like this weird vibe to them to where vegetation doesn't grow, like almost like it's cursed or look at like when you tie in um like with a yeti or a bigfoot and having you know it i forgot where i was gonna go with this one i would i'm do you remember no yet? no i lost <laughs> it. it i was tying in on yeah but somehow like they go hand. well i think it's because i'm thinking of the next thing which we haven't said so i'm gonna use an alaskan example to tell you why there's not much vegetation on a flannel this. shirt no it's it's if you look around the mountains here, hmm. 
just walk outside and look around. A lot of these mountains do not have much vegetation mm. because of the way they're made, their elevation. There's it's it's cold too much of the time yeah. for something to grow that strongly. And maybe that's the case because they're in the Ural Mountains. Yeah. And we know a good portion of Russia is cold a large part of the year. So I would think that maybe parts of these mountains are just pure rocky mountains, like the ones we see around here where not much could grow on it. Mm. And that could be what makes it attractive for climbing or yeah. hiking. I mean, I see a lot of vegetation on the mountains out here, though. Not up to a, a certain of, point, though. A lot I mean, of berries. and Yeah, I don't climb But from what I've heard, like, there's like not much on this mountain at all. Like, no, no local berries. No, yeah. nothing rough. to, like... Yeah, I would say if you look at the the rockier parts of the hill, especially going from here to Eagle River hmm. off to the left, once you go up past a certain level that's too steep, it's too just pure rock. Jagged, yeah. Well, I mean, like Bear Grylls might, you know, knock me if he's listening. But yeah. I mean, in the wintertime here, I don't think there's much that you're going to find in the woods that you're going to easily survive off of. For right. like, I mean, it's winter, it's cold, everything's mm, yeah. dead. It's twigs and so... Yeah. Yeah, Unless well, you're going to start eating bark to like survive. I don't even know if that's a thing, you know, fiber, what fiber. are you going to, yeah. you know, have for substance besides game? Mm. But it, it, like what I've heard, like I said, there's not even like wildlife that really roams that area. Mm. So, but it being dark forces would be more entertaining. It would. And I'm just, I'm not saying that it absolutely is. I'm saying there's correlation between these supposed like quote unquote cursed areas, cursed ground. And if anything, we should look into the, uh, maybe the lore with the indigenous people of this area. To see what they say it is outside of just or what if it's like mountain. Russia's like Skinwalker Ranch, it's like a paranormal mountain, like yeah. hub, it's like, like a hot a, spot right like there. Big, um, what if it's portal? For, hmm. I don't know. And that's why you got the you know Yeti in there. Hmm. What if tens of thousands of years this indigenous group had been in this region, and every time for their their journey into manhood, some of the their people went up into these mountains and died. Hmm. I mean. That could be, it could be as something as simple as that is this was such a treacherous area mm. that they lost a lot of people there. Yeah. Regardless of the reasons, whether it was avalanches in certain parts of the region or just the lack of food and resources. Once you got stuck up there, you were going to die. Yeah. Especially I, in the winter. I think, I can't remember where I heard it. I, I, I think someone went into the like beliefs of the indigenous people there, like for a little bit in an episode that I heard about the Dyatlov incident. And I want to say it was something a little more on, I mean, you know, like most indigenous stories, it's more on the freaky paranormal side as to why these things happen. So, I mean, that might be something that we could just, you know, what we should do is we should look into that and just write a blog post about it. Cause we're, we're filling our blog with um, different perspectives on how we all view these topics that we talk about or even topics that we don't talk about. And I think it would be like if we have in or find information about something that we did an episode on that could maybe add to it a little bit, just write up a quick mm -hmm. little blurb about it, post it on the blog and, you know, let people know, hey, if you want more information on this, we just wrote up a little something about it. Yeah. Like, cause I find in a lot of the episodes we do, and this happens anytime you banter with anyone or kind of like bounce ideas off each other is that you will have more questions at the end of it. Be like, well, I guess we have three or four more things that we should have looked into or could look yeah. into. And so that's a good use of a blog that isn't. And again, the uniqueness of having different perspectives of what people think about it, like the, between the three different hosts, I think it's just like, it's a good idea for us to, so we don't have to go like record another episode and be like, this is what actually we think now, you know? Yeah. Like we don't want to bore you with too many two parts mm -hmm. and yeah. three hour long episodes, uh, where you're glazing over and yeah. at some point drawing, you know, droning yeah. us out a bit. So it's well, just another way to reach out, keep the, um, the talk going. And, you know, I think something we all can say it's hard to find top or people to want to discuss this kind of stuff with yeah, so you're not alone you know a lot of our friends were reaching out through the internet so it's just you know we write in with you guys it just opens up discussion hmm. well the, the blog post could also show in if something is shows interest or people show interest in something and want more details that could lead us into a future episode yeah where we True. go more in depth into something we just threw out is like some information mm -hmm. and and with all three of us being on there is you'll get to see our different takes. Yeah. Like you were saying, and it's, it'll be a, a good way to kind of get into our brains when we're sitting here discussing things. And I'm basically trying to throw out all these natural reasons for mm. some of this freaky stuff going on. Yeah. Um, get a little bit more of, of a 
each individual's take and can communicate with us in a way if, mm-hmm. if you choose to. Yeah. So like what's um, do you want to read the, the next? Yeah, we one? have one one last theory. So another group of hikers 31 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north of on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Ivedell and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March 1959 by various independent witnesses, including meteorology service and the military. These sightings were not noted in 1959 investigation and the various witnesses came forward years later. So if we're going on a Yeti Bigfoot type way, I think it's interesting that so many times along with Bigfoot, there's those orange orbs floating, you mm-hmm. know, lights in the sky. Yeah. It's continually you hear that. Same with that feeling of fear. So if they're cutting out of their tent, they're not getting their gear on. And that sense of looming fear and trying to get away, maybe they, you know, it was a Yeti. And then they took off and, you know, explains missing body parts, the orbs in the sky. Mm-hmm. If you want to go on like a whole paranormal picture together. Yeah. I'm not getting on the Yeti bus. Well, it's not a bus. It's just fact. No. <laughs> okay. The Yeti sled. The Yeti sled. The sleddy. I, I mean, I can see how those, the different phenomena can be connected, mm-hmm. but those could also be natural. Even the orbs could be yeah. a natural phenomenon that goes along with the crazy infrasound. Mm, we got ourselves a, a swamp gas fella over here. No, not swamp gas. I'm not sure they can be connected. But Mountain gas. Once we get something going on, you know. Yeah. Now, if we go with your interdimensional Yeti, some of these things are po- possible. Yeah, you know. If there was is. such a thing. Well. Yeah. I would assume that there'd be strange atmospheric phenomenon going on. Mm. Like when Arnold Schwarzenegger comes through time. He's naked. Yeah. But if you're a Yeti, you're going to be naked anyway. As long as you keep your fur, you're fine. Yeah. So yeah. what if they dress in suits and then it's only when they just zap into our existence that they're naked and maybe they're self-conscious. That's why they hide. Figured it out. Wow. We did too. I just think they know <laughs> that everybody would go on a manhunt and kill them. So they're yeah. just hiding out. Mm-hmm. We are very much, we need proof and to test everything. So I wouldn't be going off showing myself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think over, over the years, I've heard a lot of theories regarding the Dialov incident and my belief in what has happened has changed with the amount of information I've had over the years. Like, I feel like every time I hear the story, I'm like, maybe it's this, like, maybe it's something different. Like for the longest time, obviously I thought it was aliens at first. I'm like, wow, you know, there's reports of a bright light, this stuff, blah, blah, like must be aliens. And then after that, I heard reports of the Yeti and all that. And, um, then it was only recently that I, I started hearing about the infrasound and about like the, the wind theory and as ridiculous as it sounds, it could also happen. Like it's, it's something that, you know, they, they've done tests in that area too, to see like what the winds are like and, and, you know, record that type of audio and, and just see, I think with the amount of people that climb this mountain, I imagine there's more than just these people that have done it. I, I imagine it's more of like a, yeah, every year people try to cl- climb this, this, right. You would think that more reports would have come out about hearing this type of stuff or being like, I felt really weird when I was up here or, you know, like instead of just this being the story. And then after that, it's this is the explanation you know you're like i just it it doesn't add up to me that that's a hundred percent what it is because we would have had more reports i could um, i'd still i feel that there is a soviet aspect to this and Mm. maybe it was some kind of weapon tested on their own people if i'm going to go out on a limb and grab something that's a little out there and not natural yeah that's where i would go and the cover-up had to happen somebody knew somebody in the government knew what went on Mm. and that could have been an early test of what these kind of weapons would do to people. Yeah. So I think uh, we all have our opinions out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got two Yetis and one we don't know yet. Mm. I'll consider yeah. myself like he's he bounces around. It's the wind. It's the yeah. whatever. The only thing he knows is it's not Yeti. I'm actually kind of in that minus that it's not Yeti thing. I'm in the it could be one of several things and i'm not locking or sinking yeah, my I'm not teeth into one down. i think it's yeah. definitely between like the wind infrasound. i just don't think it's an avalanche it doesn't make sense to me it's definitely not an avalanche. how it's not buried and ca- i mean avalanches take trees out everything well, how makes, could that tent be it made sense like, to me at so first. that doesn't make sense to me yeah. i think it's got to be either wind or the infrasound or we could be out there and say the yeti but i yeah and I, and i also want to note like 
this is obviously like these are people's lives. It's super sad it happened. Mm-hmm. Like we never really touched on that, but a sad thing that happened. I just don't know what caused it. Yeah, and I'm not going to get the truth out of Soviet. Yeah, well, they they proved that again last year when they came out with pretty much the exact same thing they said. They're like, we're reopening the case. And they're like, oh, turns out it's the thing we told you a while back. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So so if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that we've been lied to by Russia. And the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union. So I think that that just about wraps it up. Um, It's a fun story. I always like hearing about it. And because I I, I feel like it's something that the, the theories constantly expand on to. Like, I feel like every, like, couple of years, handful of years, there's something else or somebody else talking about it. I'm like, but no one's considered this. Yeah. You know, so it's just a fun thing to kind of relive and re. Well, and what prompted us doing this case is there's a, a similar story that we want to do another episode on. So it was yeah. kind of tying in, hey, these two have the same kind of sounding thing. Maybe we mm-hmm. can figure out and draw between them. Yeah. Um. So stay tuned. So, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. And um, if you, if you have your own theories, like, actually, what's the thing that grabs you about the Dyatlov Pass incident, I'm sure it's something that a lot of people have heard about. If if you've got a specific theory that we didn't touch on, you know, write in, let us know at the uh, the gang at thefreakydeaky.com. Or you can uh, slide into our DMs over on Instagram at freakydeakypod. You can watch some some videos on TikTok at freakydeakypod. You can see Christian retweet weird things at freaky deaky pod on twitter and you can see heather over at the freaky deaky podcast on facebook either way just get in touch with us you know if you'd like to to leave us a voicemail that's an option too at the website thefreakydeaky.com yeah more importantly we have sticker packs available now and And they are dope they are super dope so if you like to decorate your water bottles it's a huge thing up here in alaska um they're awesome I'll say they're very durable. They are. Nice heavy duty material. We have some that are holographic and Scott does an amazing job coming up with all these cool designs. I do. They are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't stop. And anything you 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 spend on us, it goes right back into the podcast. What we can do to help the show grow. Hmm. And uh, it's just cool. It'll brighten up your day if you're a sticker fan. You guys aren't paying me? (laughs) Yeah, no. the The merch uh, as of right now, we have uh, we have shirts, hoodies, sticker pack. Um, I'm working on some like weirder looking ho- hoodies too that are like all over prints, and they're pretty dope. Ordered some samples. See how they go. Too. Yeah, we got a garage blanket that actually got delivered while we were recording this episode. Ooh, so go? we yeah, get to check that check out. out. Stay tuned. We'll give you a review. damn it. Get out, Christian. <laughs> 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 yeah. So that Sorry. about that that wraps up the yeah, love. Uh, shoot us your your theories, your beliefs on this. We are interested in hearing that. And uh, we will see you next time. Until next time. Now you say it, Christian. What? Say bye. Oh, <laughs> sit, boo-boo, sit. Oh. Okay. <laughs> the end. That's a, that's a reference on the old. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, six, five, five.